John 18, verses 1 through 14. So again, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. Let me uh, read those verses for us. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who are you seeking? And he said, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying may be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for all the people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our uh, time here this morning. Father, we pray that you will bless the hearing of your word. Father, as we study uh, this morning, we pray that you will be our teacher this morning. Father, we ask that as we uh, as we look at these uh, verses, Father, that you would guide us. And uh, Father, we pray that you would use your word to change us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we see first uh, that this arrest, the arrest of Jesus took place at night. And since it was the night before the Passover, uh, there was a full moon. Uh, Apparently, the arrest took place on the slopes of the Mount of Olives near the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus' day, uh, Jesus' day, the mount was covered with olive trees. Now, if you remember... When we talk about um, the Roman occupation of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., uh, so decades later they cut down all these olive trees and used them for firewood. The Romans did, but uh, at this time it is covered with rich and lush olive trees. So you can just kind of imagine for a moment that they're in a garden of olive trees. It's at night. It's a full moon. So the moon would be uh, probably casting shadows in the garden. Um, kind of a, maybe an eerie kind of feeling, if that makes sense, if you can kind of imagine. I've never been in a grove of olive trees, um, but I've seen pictures and I can just kind of imagine kind of being amidst those trees with the, with it being at night, a full moon, uh, shadows being cast into, into the night. Uh, excuse me, John does not give us uh, the account of Christ's agony in the garden. 
Uh, the other gospel writers tell us that he became uh, so distressed that his uh, sweat was like great drops of blood. There, if you remember, based on the other accounts, is where in the garden here before the arrest is where he asked the father to let this cup of suffering pass from him. If you remember that, he asked if this cup can pass from me. Uh, and, and I've often thought, and maybe you've thought about that, um, and as I was reading some of these uh, commentaries uh, this week, I found a quote from Calvin uh, helpful, because when you think about Jesus asking, why would he ask the cup to pass? I mean, he knew it was coming. Um, he would, you know, what was going on here. And surely there was a lot going on that, that it, you know, we probably won't fully understand. But Calvin commented that uh, on the fact that Jesus had asked for this cup to pass. He says, the fact that, that Jesus prayed three times to be delivered from death, we find that in Matthew 26, is not inconsistent with that voluntary obedience of which we have spoken. For it was necessary that he should contend with difficulties that he might be found victorious. So an interesting uh, take from Calvin. Um, but uh, So John doesn't focus on, on that. He doesn't focus on those things. John focuses here on the arrest here in the garden. And we see here in, in verse 1, John tells us that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where, the, where, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, when you hear him talk about this brook, uh, you might think of a nice flowing stream or maybe even a small river or something. But in reality, it would be what we would call today, I, I would call it anyway, in country rural terms, a drain. Basically a dry creek, right? The only, um, what would happen, the only time there would be water flowing in this brook is when there were heavy rains. Okay, it became a, that's where the water uh, flowed uh, down through the area. And so, uh, but it is noted when that did happen, when they had the rainy seasons and you had um, uh, a heavy rains in the area, it flowed like a mighty river is what, is what Dr. Spruill says. And it was actually very dangerous to cross when it was flowing with a lot of water. But most of the time it was dry. Okay, Most of the time the Brook Kidron was dry and people uh, could easily cross it. Now, this drain, this, this brook, um, uh, ran through the Kidron Valley between the Temple Mount, which was on the east, and of Jerusalem, and, and the Mount of Olives, to the, uh, further to the east. So why did Jesus go to the garden? Well, when, and I'm sure that, again, there are many reasons, but uh, one important thing uh, to note is that, remember, this is Passover, right? A lot of... Uh, Jews are coming into town to celebrate Passover. Well, when the pilgrims, those who didn't live there, when they made the journey to Jerusalem for Passover, they were required to spend the night before Passover within the border uh, vicinity of Jerusalem. They had to be within, if you would call it maybe the city limits, but was you had to be within Jerusalem proper. You had to be uh, within that. And so this is the night before Passover, and the section where they went, where this garden is, was considered within those limits. So this is why uh, Beth, uh, this is why Jesus uh, didn't go out to Bethany uh, to the home of his friends Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Right, that would have been because he stayed there often. Right, he was he stayed there regularly, uh, but their home was outside of the limits. So. Here again, we see Jesus fulfilling every requirement of, of the law. He is here. He is staying within the limits 
of Jerusalem on the night of the Passover. John continues here in in verse 2. He says, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now this little detail is significant. Why do we say that? In uh, you remember in the upper room, Jesus um, had uh, told, uh, had, had said, had prophesied that Judas was going to betray him, and then he dismissed him. You remember, and what did, what did he tell him? He says, "What you do, do quickly." Uh, Jesus uh, knew, or Judas knew where Jesus was headed, and and Jesus knew where Judas was headed. He knew that as he dis- dismissed him, that what, he knew exactly what was about to happen. So Judas has been dismissed. He's going to go um, communicate with uh, the authorities. And so Jesus knows all those things. And so one might expect, considering Jesus knew what Judas was about to do, uh, that maybe, hey, if it were me, I probably would go uh, anywhere other than a place that I regularly met with my disciples, right? I would, I would go anywhere but a regular place. I, I wouldn't go where, you know, somewhere where I could be easily found and, and much more a, a place that even Judas knew about right well you would it it, it was it was um, so it, it that would be something that you and I would probably think about trying to avoid arrest well it was only natural uh, that Judas would know where they were headed okay they may have even talked about it we don't know John doesn't tell us right uh, that night it may have even already it may have been the plan the whole time we, we, we're not a hundred percent sure but but what we know about what Jesus is doing is that he knows all these things, but he's not trying to avoid arrest. He knows what's about to happen. He's fully aware of what's about to happen. Indeed, his time has now come. His hour has come. So he makes no attempt, even though he understands what's going on, he makes no attempt to avoid any type of arrest. Verse 3 John tells us, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Notice that John tells us uh, there are two groups of people who came uh, with Judas to arrest Jesus. Uh, The first group, John says, was a detachment. Uh, And the second group uh, was a group of temple police sent by the Jewish authorities. So what we can see uh, early on is this is a a joint operation between uh, the Romans and the Jews. They're in this together to come arrest Jesus. And normally, uh, the Romans did not have a large... um, garrison of troops in Jerusalem. But remember what time this was. This was the time of the Passover. So during the Passover, they would send thousands of troops into the area uh, to handle any sort of issue that came up during Passover. Any any riots or anything, they would have uh, plenty of uh, troops on scene to handle that. Uh, they would... Uh, uh, they were there to protect against any sort of local uprising. Maybe somebody would rise up and want to overthrow. You had all these Jews in town. Maybe they're going to try to get together and kick the Romans out, right? So they would put all these extra troops here in Jerusalem during the Passover. In fact, they were 
the Roman, the Roman troops were housed right next to the quarters of Pontius Pilate. Now on paper, uh, a detachment, a uh, detachment of troops was about 1,000 troops. That's what uh, normally a Roman detachment. 1,000 troops. Now, uh, most likely, not all of them would have come out on this night. They wouldn't have sent all of the Roman soldiers here uh, out on this night. But it's estimated that between six and seven hundred soldiers came out here tonight. Six and seven hundred soldiers to capture one man. Uh, add, add to them the, the temple police. Uh, there could have been uh, several hundred of them as well. So it is, is very possible, and we can make an educated guess, that about a thousand men came to arrest and capture Jesus. One thousand troops, soldiers, temple police, to capture one man. <coughs> now you can think about it, again, remember the setting, right? It's night, they're in the garden, it's a full moon, um... Just imagine if you were outside in a quiet area, right? Forget busy Highway 34. It was, you know, if it was quiet and we were out in the garden. And a thousand soldiers, a thousand people, men, lanterns, right? Torches, all these things coming towards you. Uh, it is, it's, it's very, very possible. We can be sure uh, that Jesus and the disciples heard them coming. There is no way for a group that large to sneak up on you, right? It's not possible. Okay, so we know that they heard them coming. Verses uh, 4 and 5, uh, John, John continues. He says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Okay, we're in the garden. We hear the troops coming. They make no attempt to run and hide, right? He didn't try to conceal himself uh, in the shadows. He didn't. He didn't try to, to hide behind any of the disciples, right? He, he he is right here. He knows this is coming, and and John kind of uh, in a. And sort of in the first, in, the, in verse four, there kind of in a, in a matter of fact way, right? States that Jesus knows all things. Jesus knew all things. He he says Jesus knowing all things. That's a, almost like a throwaway statement, right? I mean, it's just uh, Jesus knows all things. Well, it's Jesus knows all things, right? Because he's God. That's why he knows all things. But um, so in the middle of this, he knows exactly what's happening. What does he do? He takes. The initiative, right? He steps right up front. He greeted the soldiers and then asked them that very simple question. Whom do you seek? Now, remember, he knows all things. He knows they're there to seek him, but he has to ask the question, right? He must ask the question, whom do you seek? And when they answered, uh, when, excuse me, when he answered, or excuse me, they answered Jesus of Nazareth, he answered I am He. Now, we have seen this combination of words several times in John's Gospel, right? The I am sayings of Jesus. 
And we've talked about the significance. You remember, um, we've heard him, we've heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. We've heard him say, I am the light of the world, and so on. I am the door. We've heard him say all these I am sayings. And if you remember, it's the same uh, unique phrase. Okay, it's the same phrase. And rendered in the Greek, it's those two words, if you remember. Ego, emi, right? Two words. Which, when you put them together, mean I am, I am. That's the same, of course, and this is review for y'all because we've talked about this. It's the same name that God used for himself in Exodus, right? And Moses was, he was going to send Moses uh, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, uh, Moses asked, who should I say is sending me? I am who I am. The same name. So Jesus here uses that same construction, that same language, the same words. And of course, he was in fact, claiming to be God. He was claiming deity for himself when he says, I am he. And so he uses it here in the garden. We hear him use it again. Now, as soon as he said it, what happened? Uh, uh, verse, verse 6, I will admit to you that this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they, a thousand troops, drew back and fell to the ground. Now just let that sink in for a minute. Consider what we've been talking about. Okay, you've got Jesus with a handful of disciples. In a garden, it's at night, it's a full moon, you've got a thousand men coming to take one man. When he said, I am he, they all fell to the ground. Now there were, there were two groups of people here who were scared. Okay? Two groups of people. The disciples. Don't you imagine they were scared at this point? Uh, probably so, right? And you can imagine uh, what they were thinking. Well, we've, they're coming to get him. We've been with him, we, we, you know, for years now. We agree with him. We have, you know, associated with him. We support him. We love him. They're, they're probably going to arrest us too. That's what they got to be thinking. They're coming to get him, but we're done for too. Who knows what's going to happen to us? But this other group that was even more afraid than the disciples were the soldiers and the temple police. They haven't outnumbered 1,000 to 1, but they're scared. Dr. Sproul says, doesn't, uh, it said, doesn't, and it's reminded him, it said, it reminds him, it, maybe it reminds us too, of when Moses and the people of Israel were trapped, okay, at the Red Sea, right? They, or so they thought, right? They were trapped at the Red Sea. And you have the chariots of Pharaoh, all of Pharaoh's army coming after them, right? To take them back into slavery. You can imagine they were scared, right? Oh, now we're done. There's no way to cross here. We're done. They're going to get us. They're taking us back to Egypt. Or what about when Elisha found himself surrounded, right? By the soldiers of Syria. If you look at both 
situations, right? The Moses and the Israel at the Red Sea, and you look at Elisha. Uh, to the naked eye, uh, both situations were hopeless, weren't they? Absolutely hopeless to the naked eye. But we know that God made a way for Moses and Israel through the Red Sea. He made a way. He saved them, didn't he? In a supernatural way. Elisha's situation seemed just as hopeless, didn't it? What does the servant say? What are we going to do? What shall we do? There is no hope for us, Elisha. We are done. And what did Elisha do? He prayed, didn't he? What did he say? Lord, open his eyes that he can see. And God answered that prayer, didn't he? And what did Elisha's servant see? Mm, God's army. Right? He saw chariots of fire surrounding the city. And what were they there to do? They were there to protect God's man. I got these people surrounded. God is there in a very real way. And when you think about the situation that Elisha is in, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a moment. I know that's difficult, right? But think about it for a minute. Jesus knew that like Elisha, he was completely surrounded. He was completely surrounded by an angel of hosts. Perhaps an army of angels. Perhaps every angel that exists was there. Ready. All waiting. With bated breath to say Jesus to say when. You tell us when, Jesus, we got this. You tell us when. Hmm. It's... Um, I heard, uh, before I move on, I heard Dr. Ferguson give a series of sermons and he was talking about angels. And on one of them, uh, he speaks about Christ's birth. And it's limited what we know about angels, right? And their knowledge, it's limited. We don't have a lot of information, right, about what they know, okay, about God's plan. We know they they know a lot. Uh, But Dr. Ferguson said, you just imagine on, uh, before before Jesus became uh, born, born, before he came down, right before he was conceived in Mary. Just so you can, you can imagine the angels almost, and this is what Dr. Ferguson said. It's like there were, there's a, he says, like there's a, there's a wall right in heaven where they can look down on earth, and it's like every angel was crowded up against the wall, like looking over, like what's he doing? Like wait a minute, this is the son. He he's going where? He's doing what? All just kind of watching, like wow, this is. This is really about to happen, and I can kind of think about it in 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 this context. If 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 that was the case, again, we don't know. But can you just imagine? Every it could have been right, very well be. We don't have scripture that tells us that, but it could be every angel created is ready to. We're here. All you got to do is give the word. All you got to do, Jesus, will give give us the word. It kind of seems like the soldiers may have sensed it too, right? A little bit, right? It's one man. And they're scared. They're on their face. They'd never encountered uh, anyone like Jesus. But you know, and I told you, 
before we read the verse, this is one of my favorite verses. Um, it, it is because it kind of gives me chills when you read it. I, I think, uh, remember, uh, was it last week we talked about um, Dr. Spool writing a book about the times that God's glory, or excuse me, that Jesus' glory shone through. Well, I think this is another one of those times. I think this is another one of those times when when Jesus' glory broke through. Not, not with His person, not in His physical person, but with His voice. Right? The very voice of God broke into creation. And what's the only possible response from fallen human beings? When you hear the voice of God, you fall to your face. There is no other response. You fall to the ground. Truly amazing. Truly amazing. Make no mistake about who is in control here. Okay? Make no mistake. Jesus is in complete control. Now when you think about this this, this voice of God, you think about the response of, of fallen men. Uh, it, today, obviously, it is uh, we, you and I, are not uh, able to hear the audible voice of Christ uh, like these men did. And I um, have a quote here from Calvin that I thought was very helpful. So considering that we don't hear the voice, audible voice of Christ, it says, yet we daily see the wicked with all their rage and pride struck down by the voice of Christ. And when those men fell down who had come to bind Christ, there was exhibited a visible token of that alarm which wicked men feel within themselves, whether they will or not, when Christ speaks by his ministers. That's heavy. Isn't it? We talked about it. <laughs> this is amazing. I am he. They all fell to the ground. As Calvin noted, by, whether they will to do it or not, whether it was involuntary, they just, it's, it's God. Fall to the ground. Like immediately. Like, don't even think about it. Well, we don't get to hear that anymore, Jason. But yes, in a way, we do. Right? In a real way, we do. Not the same way. Okay? Not, not the same way. Okay? But in a very real way, we do. Because if you remember, right preaching, true preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. When your minister... And when all the Bible preaching ministers, when they stand in the pulpit and they say, thus saith the Lord, that's the words of the Lord. Now what's the response of wicked men? Mm. <clears throat> wicked men can fall down on their face. And you know, I think that's something we need to pray about, isn't it? We need to pray is pray for our pastor. We can pray for ours specifically. We can pray for all of our pastors uh, that are in pulpits on Sundays as they preach the word that it will go out with power. God's word, not his, not the, the, the man's word, right? But Christ's word. And we pray for that same power. But it does what? It demands a response. 
Right? That's the power of God. It demands a response. And we pray that what? The Holy Spirit accompanies that. And it softens men's hearts. And their response is to do what? To fall on their face and ask for forgiveness. To repent. That's what we pray for, right? When our ministers stand up and preach. Father, do the work. Your word is going forth. Just like your words went forth here. And it was an amazing reaction. We're asking for that Sunday in the pulpit. Bring that, Lord. Bring that response by your people. Wicked men may may repent. Those who love them will be convicted, will be drawn closer to Jesus, right? Those are all the things that we think about. Hmm. Well, Jesus didn't call the angels. Instead, here in verses 7 through 9, he says, Then ask him again, Whom are you seeking? So maybe by this time, maybe they're standing back up. Right? Maybe. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That they that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of these you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus was not at all concerned about himself, his safety, or what may happen to him. He knows all things, but he is concerned with what? The safety of his disciples, of those that he loves, his band of brothers, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Of those you gave, I, gave me, I lost none. But now we love Peter, right? We do. We're a lot more like Peter than all of us think, right? Peter was not prepared to go just yet, right? Verse 10, it says, Then then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now this this sword, um, the sword was probably more like a dagger, okay? Shorter kind of thing. Um, and who knows, I get it probably Simon was headed, probably aiming for his head. He's ready to cut the man's head off. Let's, let's, let's get it done. I'm ready, man. We're going we're gonna to do it. And he, he, he took off an ear instead. Right, maybe he ducked out of the way. Right, he he gets his ear of the high priest's uh, servant. And notice too about this incident. Uh, all four gospels record this event, but only John is the one who tells us it's Peter. Only John adds it that it's Peter who did this. And of course, if we consider the other gospels, uh, Luke's uh, account of this adds that it did what that Jesus healed the man's ear. He restored it. He put it back on. That's in Luke twenty-two. So, after after Jesus uh, heals the man, or maybe before, we're not really sure. He he then does what? He rebukes Peter. <coughs> he rebukes Peter. Verse verse eleven. He says, "Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given to me?" The time's here. Jesus knows that the hour has come. Then he has. Again, based on what we know from the other accounts, he's gone through this this really this this deep dark uh, point of agony in the garden, where he's he's his sweat was like drops of blood. Okay, there's a lot of anguish here, but but Jesus says this is happening. Okay, shall I not drink the cup? Remember, he asked, 
Can can the cup pass from me? I mean, not not in John's, but in, in Matthew's, right? Can the cup pass? And it, but not my will, but yours. And so Jesus is acknowledging that. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given to me? Now, when we think about um, Jesus's obedience, okay, in in theology, when we look at uh, the works of Jesus, the things that that he did, we make a distinction. Um, in his obedience is often overlooked, but we make a distinction between the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Okay, well, what uh, what are these two things? Well, both of them are necessary. The active obedience as well as the passive obedience of Christ is necessary. Dr. Sproul said it this way. He says, if if... Considering where we are, if Jesus, he, and he used the word parachuted, if Jesus had just parachuted to Golgotha and been nailed to the tree and offered his life or offered himself as a sacrifice, he says, if he'd just gone straight to the cross, parachuted into creation, gone straight to the cross and died, it would not have been enough to save us. Think about that for a minute. Hmm. Why? Well, what is the requirement to be acceptable before God? Righteousness, right? Perfection. So Jesus didn't just parachute into creation, right? And die on the cross. He didn't just do that. What did he do? He was incarnated, which we're about to celebrate, right? He came, he was born of a virgin, so he would uh, not be under the curse uh, of, of creation. He lived for 33 years, right? He lived under the law of God for 33 years. And we know that he lived a life of perfect obedience. All for what reason? For our justification, right? Because, again, what does God accept? Righteousness, perfection. That's what God accepts. And so Jesus had to live this life. He he actively, that's what we're talking about, is active obedience, right? He actively obeyed every law that God had ever given. That's why we call it his active obedience. On the other hand, his passive obedience. Okay, it, it describes what it sounds like, right? It describes how he uh, passively allowed himself to suffer, to suffer the penalty for our guilt. The, 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 the passive obedience didn't just start at the cross, okay? It started when he got off his knees in the garden. Okay, when he got up off his knees after praying to his father, he, he took the, the cup, okay? He took the cup that the father was handing him, all right? And he would then be obedient until death, even death on a cross. He... He allowed these things to happen to him. He passively obeyed. Again, we just he's, he's there. They're coming the rest of him. He could have called every angel ever created to defend him. He had them. All he had to do was ask, right? He didn't do it. He passively obeyed. He allowed these men, these sinful, these wicked men to... Arrest him. He, he, and he, and then he would not allow his disciples to fight. Put your sword back in your sheath. 
The words from Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter. He opened not his mouth. He passively obeyed. Do you see, do you see the difference? Do you see why both, both are required? There's that active obedience where we, because of what he's done, his righteousness, right? That's the only way we can stand before God, isn't it? It's Christ's righteousness, not ours. So we had to actively obey every part of the law. He is perfectly righteous. And that is the only way that we can stand before him. Again, his, his passive obedience, allowing himself to be crucified, to suffer and to die, the just penalty for sin. And um, given, given all this, the things that we've talked about, right, it's a lot, um, Especially as you consider our whole study in John, we've been, you know, walking through this life of Jesus, this ministry, these miracles, these amazing things that we've read about, right, and studied about. And here at uh, verses twelve and fourteen, given all that, it makes this hard to read, doesn't it? It makes it hard to read. It says then, and this is verse starting in verse twelve. It says then, the detachment of troops. And the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. He was, he was arrested. What's he done wrong? Not one thing, right? He was bound as if he was going to run, right? He was bound as if he was going to fight them, right? He, he was bound as if he was going to be a threat to them. And they led him away. It says, first they went to Annas. Now, I read uh, about him. He was not uh, the high priest, but, but he was before Caiaphas. He, he had been removed. Pontius Pilate had removed him. However, uh, this man still had a lot of influence. Okay, was not the high priest, but he still held a lot of influence. That's why they they went to him first, but then eventually uh, to Caiaphas. Now he was he's led away. He's taken into custody. He's led away uh, to stand before first uh, the Jewish authorities. And so now we see that uh, the stage is set, isn't it? For what would be uh, what we would call a kangaroo court, right? A make-believe court. Everything, and we're going to study about it as we go through the these things in court. Everything about it is wrong, right? and we're going to we're going to we'll get to it. Everything they did was against the law. Things that they held they held court at night. You couldn't hold court at night. You can't you can't do that, right? According to their law, you see it. But it was that's why we call it a kangaroo court. Nothing about it was right. Nothing about it was just. Here's the one, the man, who is completely just, who's perfect, who's completely obedient. But he is passively obeying his father. He is letting these things be done to him. For why? For his sake? Well, you could say yes for his sake, but for your sake. For our sake, right? Yes. He had every... Remember when we talked about his prayer, he prayed for you and me. He had his people in his mind when he prayed for his people. I'm doing this for them and for the Father. Father may be glorified. Any questions or comments? We have just a couple of minutes.
together. Father, we pray that uh, you'll be with our pastor as he leads us, Father. And we pray that uh, your word, Father, in a very real way, Father, like we read here today, Father, will go forth with power and that people will respond. We ask these things in your name. Amen.